Amen. Well, let's uh, start in John chapter 16. We've been teaching uh, uh, for several weeks on the subject of the Holy Ghost, and we want to continue that a little bit further. We've talked a little bit about uh, manifestations of the Spirit as identified over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But in here in John chapter 16 is Jesus' farewell address, if you will, to his disciples. It's the last things that, that uh, he has a chance to tell them before he is uh, taken captive by the, uh, the priesthood and turned over to Pilate for his crucifixion. So in John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus said, How be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak and will show you things to come. Notice that last phrase, he'll show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore I said that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Now, as I mentioned just a minute ago, we've uh, looked a little bit at the uh, list of nine different manifestations of the Spirit over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul tells the church that he would not have us to be ignorant, and since he's inspired by the Holy Ghost to say it, it's really the Holy Ghost saying to us through the Apostle Paul. And then he gives us the, uh, the list of nine different manifestations, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, and discerning of spirits, special faith, gifts of healings, and I'm missing one of the power gifts, working of miracles. And then the utterance gifts, tongues, interpretations of tongues, and prophecy. And he says that all those things work by the Spirit as he wills. So we know whenever we see one of these manifestations of the Spirit in, uh, uh, recorded in the book of Acts or uh, given to us in some way through the Bible, we know that these are things that the Holy Ghost wants to do. And so I just want to share some things with you tonight to try to build your faith on the Holy Ghost manifesting himself. This last phrase, he shall show you things to come, something about that's always jumped out at me. I don't know exactly what it is, but something about that just thrills my heart every time I, I read these verses or think about them. He shall show you things to come. He shall show you things to come. Look with me over to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, we'll start in verse 1. It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Folks, please notice that Paul identified two different uh, parts of our Christian life. Salvation and the Holy Ghost, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. When he asked them, have they received the Holy Ghost, he's asking them, do you speak in tongues? They said, we've never heard anything about that. And so Paul asked, unto what then are you baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. And then Paul said to them, uh, John baptized, barely baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, 
he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, folks, I'm going to draw on your memory a little bit here. You remember in the, uh, the revelation that John got from uh, Jesus on the Isle of Patmos, the first three chapters are letters to the churches, instructions to the churches. There were seven different churches, Ephesus being one of them, where Paul is here in Acts chapter 19. And they made kind of a circuit. And there were roads that connected all of these uh, cities. And Jesus' revelation to John was to show the, the uh, condition of those churches, to give them instruction, to encourage them. In several cases, he rebuked them. And those churches or those cities, that circuit of those seven cities, made up what was called Asia. We know of it as Turkey, maybe Eastern Turkey. But that was what was considered to be Asia. And so when the Bible tells us that Paul disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus for the space of two years, in two years, both the Jews and the Greeks in Asia were evangelized. Both the Jews and the Greeks received the word of the Lord or heard enough about the word of the Lord. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about Paul going from city to city. And I think if that's the way that it went, it probably would have told us that. So I don't think we can uh, legitimately or with any basis, in fact, assume that Paul did anything. But apparently there were those who were under Paul's ministry that went to these cities. This was a, a big um, circle of commerce, if you will. People traveled frequently from one of these cities to the next. And each one of these cities were only 15 miles or so, some a little bit more and some a little bit less. But they were well within walking distance over a short period of time. So when the Bible says that all of Asia heard the word for both the Jews and the Gentiles or the Jews and the Greeks, this is talking about a great move of God. This is talking about one of the greatest revivals that ever existed. And Luke, who's the writer of the book of Acts, gives us the information, but he doesn't hype it up. He doesn't brag on it. It's just a simple thing that took place. And this ministry in Ephesus had to have been so um, significant. This revival in, in Ephesus had to be so significant to have the kind of impact that it did. You may recall back a little bit earlier in uh, Acts chapter 16, this was a couple of years before these events took place in Acts chapter 19. And Paul wanted to go into Asia, but the Holy Ghost wouldn't let him. It was one of the places that they were forbidden to go into. Now here several years later, two, three, four years later, whatever it might be. Now he's reaching all of Asia from one place, one simple location through the, the, the events, series of events that had taken place here. Goes further and tells us something about this revival that spread into all of Asia. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, folks, if Paul wasn't getting some success in casting out devils, there's no way in the world somebody's going to try to emulate what he did. This is a very clear indication to us 
that whatever was going on and whatever had gone on in these two years that helped spread the good news to these other cities and, and perhaps even beyond. We don't know, uh, don't have any way to know about that, but it certainly isn't far-fetched to, to think that it would go even further than these, these seven cities. In fact, it would seem logical that the, the truth of the, the Word of God would travel as far as the commerce roads or, or uh, avenues took them. That's why people are going from city to city in the first place. So when Paul is performing these, hanker, these uh, special miracles at the will of God, there are other guys that wanted to get in on it. These seven sons of Siva. And so as we read, they spoke, over, spoke to these evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? That's pretty good uh, advertisement. So they said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and the Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now notice the next two verses. It says, And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts brought the books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Now we already see a great revival taking place. We see the word of God spreading over a wide area and wide territory in a very short period of time, in a space of about two years. But notice the condition of some of the people in the church. I, I think we look at things kind of romantically. I'm sure I do, at least. And we get this idea that if there's a move of God going on, everybody's going to have an open heart and everybody's going to want to be a part of it and everybody's going to have repented from the sins in their own lives, tried to make things right with the Lord and, and keep things right. But that's not, uh, obviously not the case here. There are still people that are using Christianity as just another way of worshiping some God. Now, Ephesus was known for these books. Ephesus was known to be a healing center. And there's a lot of weird and, and strange things that, uh, uh, that these priests to other gods would get people to do and, and were involved in and so forth. A lot of it had to do with drugs and hallucinogens and, and, uh, and things like that. But Ephesus was known for being a healing center. But it certainly wasn't a healing center as far as the, God, the power of God was concerned. So apparently there's a lot of people in this church, in the church at Ephesus, that are just adding Jesus to their list of gods to serve. But when they saw a demonstration... That the power of God, when it was flowing through Paul, would overcome evil spirits. But only when it's used in the proper and right manner. Then people got the idea that God is the God of all. That he's greater than any of the idols that they serve. And so when it says that they brought the, these books and curious arts together and burned them before all men, they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver 
uh, I did some calculation on this about 20 years ago, and it was a value of about $6 million. It's probably worth a lot more than that now in, in today's prices. But a significant sum, no matter when you add it up. And notice that it says in verse 20 that that's when the word of God began to grow mightily and prevail. So mightily grew the word of God and prevail. One of the greatest, and, and this is what's significant about this to me, one of the things at least, is that in the greatest revival that we have record of in the Bible, one of the greatest revivals, the people's heart wasn't really toward God. There's a great evangelistic outreach. There's no question about that. But it was only after the Holy Ghost demonstrated his power as being the greater power that it made a difference in the lives of people and they began to turn things around. Now, when they began to turn things around, that's when the word of God began to grow mightily and prevail. After these things, verse 21, after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, on the heels of the greatest display of power that we have record of, in the greatest revival that we have record of, Paul decides to go somewhere else. That would have been a perfect place for him to start a church. Would have been a perfect place for him to pastor. He could have pretty much called his own shots because of the number of people and the, the, the fact that the whole city had turned out for the things of God and so forth. But Paul was interested in one and only one thing. That was not a position. He's interested in only in doing the, war, the will of God for his life. So Paul purposed in the spirit. I like Richelieu's translation of this. It said the spirit moved Paul to plan. The spirit moved Paul to plan. Now it tells us the rest of chapter 19. It tells us about how there was an uproar and a riot that took place. Paul hadn't yet left Ephesus, but he was staying on, uh, with uh, certain disciples on the outskirts of town. And after the uproar took place, after the riot was over, they recommended strongly to Paul that he leave, which he was going to do anyway. And so it tells us about the things that happened in the next few cities that he went to. One was in Troas. Troas was the place where the, uh, the kid fell down out of the upper story window. And Paul raised him back from the dead. And so there's some terrific and tremendous things that are taking place. And it mentions a lot of different places that he went um, for example, in chapter, in chapter 20 and verse 13, And we went before to ship and sailed unto Assos, there intending to take in Paul, for so had he appointed, him, appointed minding himself to go afoot. He was planning to go by foot on his journey rather than by boat. And when we met him at Assos, we took him in and came to Mytilene. And when we had sailed over thence, we came next over against Chios. And the next day we arrived at Samos and tarried at Trogilium. The next day we came to Miletus, and where it was in Miletus was pretty close to where Ephesus was. So he's made a little circular trip of his own, and he sends to the elder, sends to Ephesus for the elders of the church, and he tells them that according to his understanding, he'll never see them again. And so he's giving them charge over the church and how to maintain the church and so forth. In verse 22, it says, and now, here's Paul's address to the elders at Ephesus. He said, and now, behold, I go bound in the spirit unto, unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, 
savor except that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Now, every one of those cities, if, we're to, if we are to take this literally, which I think we should, I think a good rule of Bible interpretation is always take something literally unless you can't. So when Paul said, I don't know what all is going to happen, but one thing I do know is that in every city, the Holy Ghost witnesses to me that I'm going to be taken captive. I'm going to become a prisoner and put in jail. Look at all the people that know about this ahead of time. See, I think the, the, the real point, the real crux of the matter, I think a lot of times we see that the Bible says God will manifest himself, but we really don't expect him to do it. There's a, a, a note, a footnote in uh, Dr. Schofield's Bible. Dr. Schofield was one of the, the great Baptist theologians of a generation ago. And one of the things that he says, he was tremendously skilled in languages and so forth. And so he said of the word of the name Jehovah, there are different times and different places where God will use different names. For example, there are places where he says, uh, where the word Elohim is used in the Old Testament. Genesis 126 is an example of that. And God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the works of our hands and so forth. Well, the name that's used for God there is the word Elohim. And it really means the three in one. But there are other places where God identifies himself as Jehovah. And Dr. Schofield identifies that the name Jehovah is the name that's always used when associated with deity. When, associ or when associated or when communicating deity. And then he said this. He said there are seven, and of course we all know this. With just cursory study we can identify this. But he said there are seven different ways, seven different words or names that God gave himself, always starting with Jehovah, referring to deity. And so he defined Jehovah as this. He defined him as the self-existent one that reveals himself. See, Jehovah Sidkenu identifies or reveals God's righteousness. Jehovah Shalom identifies God the God of peace. Jehovah Rapha identifies God as I am the God that healeth thee. So he speaks of Jehovah as being the, the great I am, the self-existent one who reveals himself. See, if we didn't have those different names, if we didn't have those seven different names, we wouldn't know what God was really like. And the point is this. The point is God's not trying to stay hidden. He wants us to know. He wants us to understand who he is. He wants us to understand what he will do. He wants to reveal himself. He didn't have to. He never did have to. But he wants mankind to come back into that fellowship that he had with Adam before the fall. He wants man to understand who he is and how he operates. He wants us to understand the word of God how to put it into practice, how to exercise our authority, and how to walk with him, just like Jesus did when he was here on the earth. He's the self-existent one that reveals himself. I like that. Don't you? Well, how's he going to reveal himself? Jesus certainly revealed the Father to us. You remember at the Last Supper, Jesus had to tell Philip, he that's seen me has seen the Father. 
He asked him, Philip asked him, show us the Father and it'll satisfy us. And he said, have I been so long time with you and have, do you not yet understand? He that see, has seen me has seen the Father. So we know that Jesus was a means whereby God revealed himself. And we learn a lot about God by looking at Jesus' ministry as recorded in the four Gospels. We understand God's attitude toward healing. Jesus never turned anybody away. Well, if Jesus is the example or the revelation of the Father, then the Father never turns anybody away for healing. We see that Jesus met people's needs. Well, if Jesus was an accurate representation of God, the Father, then God wants to meet people's needs. Everything that Jesus did was an example of God's character and his nature and his attitude and his willingness to help his mankind. And in every case, it's a revelation. He reveals himself. He reveals himself. And as I said, I think a lot of times we have the idea that the Holy Ghost really isn't going to move very often. He doesn't do much. But folks, he sure did much in the book of Acts. And it astounds me that Paul says that every city we've been to, and this was just the early part, this was uh, soon after he had left Ephesus. He says, every city I've been to, I've found disciples who've say, who witnessed to me by the Holy Ghost that bonds and afflictions await me, that I'm going to be taken prisoner. Now, he shows us his attitude about that. Apparently, that was not a surprise to him. He says in verse 24, none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. He finishes talking to them and goes to another place. Chapter 21 tells us in verse 7, and when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemus, or Ptolemaeus, I guess, and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. The same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own, bound his own hands and feet. And said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered and said, What mean you to weep and to break my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we cease saying the will of the Lord be done. Now, I use this illustration or use this story in the Bible, and rightly so, whenever we're talking about being led by the Holy Ghost. And there's some wonderful, wonderful truths and principles about this. But let's look at it from a little different angle this time. Let's look at it from the revelation side. Folks, everybody knew what was going to happen to Paul. I mean, he can't go anywhere without somebody saying, where are you going, Paul? I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. We know by the Holy Ghost they're going to take you captive and put you in prison. Now, I'm not sure how many times that happened before Paul really had to st stop and take notice and get himself settled. 
about what he's doing and why he's doing it. He already has a witness in his heart from the beginning, according to Acts chapter 19. What is it, verse 21, somewhere around there? He purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. And after that, he said, I must see Rome. So he's already got a witness. I don't know how clear it was. I don't know how distinct it was that God has witnessed this to him. It doesn't seem to be the case that he saw an angel or had any kind of spectacular leading. And it seems to me with the events that it records here, had he had some kind of spectacular leading, an angel or a dream or a vision or something like that, surely the Bible would have told us. But he simply starts off by the, the inward witness. But every place he goes, the, the, the believers in that town know what he's, what's going to happen to him. Now, folks, God never changes. He never changes. Well, that means Jesus can't ever change. And that means the Holy Ghost can't ever change. And so when we see that the Holy Ghost is telling people in every city, I guess we could ask, why is the Holy Ghost doing it? But the reality is the Holy Ghost is the revealer. He's not trying to keep things hidden. And look at all the people that know. Every town, every city. I'm sure after hearing it a couple of times, Paul has to set himself and expect it, plan for it. Because up to this point, it seems that everybody is identifying this revelation of the Holy Ghost as being a reason why he should not go to Jerusalem. Paul seems to be the only one that doesn't come to that same conclusion. When Paul says, I'm ready to be bound and to die, he's communicating to them that this is the plan of God for him, even though they don't think it's the right thing to do. And then Luke, the author of this, uh, uh, the book of Acts, who's also part of Paul's company at this point in time, he makes a, a very telling statement in verse 14. It said, and when he would not be persuaded, when we could not persuade Paul not to go to Jerusalem because of the being thrown in jail witness that we have from the Holy Ghost, when we could not persuade Paul not to go, then we stopped trying to talk him into it or talk him out of it, saying the will of the Lord be done. In other words, Paul convinced them that it was the will of God for him to go, even though he was going to be taken prisoner. Now, I'm sure not anybody in, uh, in their right mind to begin with would expect being taken prisoner and put in prison to be God's means of getting from one place to another place that you need to be. I can well understand how if a, if, if a witness was given to me that these things were going to happen to Paul, I would first assume that the Holy Ghost is saying, don't go. I can't imagine anybody, with the possible exception of Agabus. Now, it doesn't say Agabus. It says we, meaning Paul's company, and they of that place, meaning Philip and his daughters, who knew the Holy Ghost and prophesied. They had a proven ministry, and so you would well expect people to trust them. So it says Philip and his daughters and whoever else was there from there, along with Paul and his company, including Luke. We all tried to stop him from going. It doesn't say one thing about Agabus. Agabus simply delivered the message. Now, here's the difference between people that prophesy and a prophet. The ones that prophesy certainly know the Holy Ghost. They know the witness of the Holy Ghost, but they misinterpreted what the Holy Ghost was saying. 
See, everybody in every city that Paul talks about here in chapter 20, and in the same things we see happening in Caesarea, everybody interprets the truth that the Holy Ghost has revealed to mean Paul shouldn't go. Everybody except Agabus. It doesn't say a word about Agabus joining in, trying to talk him into or out of anything. It just says, Agabus says, thus saith the Lord. He's delivering the message to Paul. Now, why is the Holy Ghost revealing this thing to so many people? Because God would be unjust if he took Paul into the middle of a situation without letting him know ahead of time, here's what it's going to be like. He's giving Paul an out. And if Paul had taken that out, I'm not sure how his life would have ended. I'm not sure what stories we would have. Most probably somebody would have caught up to him and killed him because there were people still running him out of town. He just got run out of Ephesus. The Jews are still laying in wait for him in various places. Who would imagine that being taken captive, being taken as a prisoner to Rome, is the will of God for their life? Paul. Look at all the people the Holy Ghost is revealing information to. Paul gets to Jerusalem. He becomes a, the center of a riot. The Jews try to cast him out of the temple and so forth. And Paul makes his defense before the Jewish leaders. Let's start in verse, chapter 22, verse 3. Paul said, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, the city of Cilicia, yet brought up in this city, meaning Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God as you are all this day. He says to the Jews, the ones that are trying to kill him, he says, I know you're, this is based on your zeal for God. As also the high priest, oh, verse 4, I'm sorry, I skipped it. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. As also the high priest does bear me witness and all the estate of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shined from heaven a great light round about me. Now this is the first time that we're hearing Paul give his account of what took place when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 9 tells us from uh, Agabus' perspective, I mean from uh, Ananias' perspective. But here's Paul telling what was going on from him or with him. Verse 7, And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me indeed saw the light, and they were afraid, but they didn't hear the voice of him that spake unto me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of that light, it wasn't sickness or disease. I know some people have built some kind of doctrine over Paul had eye trouble, um, terrible, painful, disgusting eye trouble that he identifies as his thorn in the flesh 
and nothing could be further from the truth. He said, when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked upon him. Paul said, uh, Acts chapter 9 says, immediately scales fell from, immediately his eyes were opened as his scales fell off. And he said, the God of thy fathers has chosen thee that thou should know his will and see the, the just one and should hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance and saw him saying unto me, talking about Jesus, Make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. And I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat in every, city, in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiments of them that slew him. And Jesus responded, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Well, that tells us where Paul got the information about that he identifies in Acts chapter 13. When Paul said, Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Paul has known this from the time that Ananias laid hands on him. We don't know how it went with Barnabas. We don't know whether or not that was something that they discussed together. Or maybe it was something that Paul kept hidden in his heart until the right time. Who knows? But folks, again, notice the revelation that takes place. Notice the will of God for us to know his plans, to know his purposes, to know his intent for our lives. As I said, if nothing else, I'm just trying to build your faith for Holy Ghost revelation. God wants to reveal himself. God has revealed himself. And he wants us to be in such close fellowship with the Holy Ghost that we see and know things that are not yet come to pass. The Holy Ghost wants to show us things to come. If he wanted to show him things to come in those days, he has to want the same thing today or else he's changed. And God never changes. God never changes. I remember hearing stories by Brother Hagin, or from Brother Hagin, how that revelation would come. I witnessed a little bit of it. it was, he was in a little different phase of his ministry when I was around him than the early days when he was going from church to church. But there were times where the Lord would impress upon Brother Hagin. He was a prophet, certainly a teacher as well. But he wasn't always standing in the office of the prophet. There were times and there were meetings that we would be in, different cities we'd go to, where the prophet's anointing would come on him. But it wasn't on him all day long or, or even every day. And there were times when that prophet's anointing would come on him that the Lord would show him somebody's condition. Now, there may be people on the stretchers. If we were in uh, convention centers or meeting halls or things like that, we'd always have a place off to the side where people in wheelchairs or stretchers or whatever 
could have access to so that they could get close enough to see what was going on in here and, and, uh, and so forth. And there have been a number of times over the years that I was with him that he would look over at somebody, maybe see somebody on a stretcher. Well, if you see somebody on a stretcher, you don't know what's wrong with them. They may or may not be able to walk. It may be the fact that they're laying on a stretcher is just because of the progression of a, a disease like cancer or some other thing. But without some specific knowledge or information or questioning somebody, there'd be very, be very difficult, especially for stretcher cases, to, to understand or know what's going on. But there were times where he would know, where the Holy Ghost would tell him. And in those times where the Holy Ghost would tell him, there was always a spectacular healing that occurred. He'd say something some, to one that was like on a stretcher or something like that, tell him what the condition was. The Lord shows me that you've got such and such condition. The Lord tells me that, tells me that the, the doctor has said this or that to you or something along those lines. It was never always the same thing. It wasn't a pattern or anything like that. Other than he would wind up talking to them, tell them what the situation was, and tell them to rise and walk. And I've seen bunches of people get up and walk that couldn't have walked in. Now, he said himself that he'd like for the Holy Ghost to do that every meeting. Who wouldn't? But these things manifest as the Spirit wills. These things manifest as the Spirit wills. There were other situations where I remember in one place he was uh, uh, going to the house of somebody in a, the church he was in, the meetings that he was in. There was a lady that she and her husband had been in ministry and pastored a church themselves for some time before. But they were between churches or between ministry assignments, whatever it was. And they had a daughter that would have these seizures. The doctor said that uh, after practicing, in practicing medicine for 20-something years, that it was the worst seizures he had ever seen. And so they got a call just before church before they had to get over to the, to the, uh, the church to start the meeting. And so they agreed to stop by their house. It was right on the way, and so they stopped by their house. But on the way, Brother Hagin said he heard what sounded to him like an audible voice telling him, don't, when you get there, don't lay hands on the child. But say to the mother, mother, say to the devil, I'm walking in love. Take your hands off my child. Well, he acted out what the Lord told him. He did what the Lord told him, told the mother what to say. He said instantly she looked toward her daughter and said, Devil, I'm walking in love. Take your hands off my child. And instantly that seizure stopped. Now that was significant for her because earlier in the week she had just finally forgiven somebody. It was an in-law situation and she forgave her in-laws and started walking in love. And so that caused her to qualify for the blessing of God upon her child. So there was a, a case of revelation. It wasn't appearance. It wasn't a vision. It wasn't an angel. But it was revelation about how to minister to that woman in that situation. Well, really to the daughter, but you know what I mean. There are other times where revelation has been given to save churches from being destroyed by the devil. There was a pastor that was sitting on his rooftop, or the rooftop of the church, really, trying to fix some shingles and putting some, making some repairs to the roof and so forth. And while he's sitting on top of the roof, 
suddenly he had a vision. And he saw one of the deacons in his church, saw their house, saw cars sitting out in front of the house, people from the church going into the, to the house. And he heard this guy say in this vision that he was gathering up a petition and looking for signatures to get rid of the pastor. Well, he climbed down off the roof and went over to the guy's house. Found it just the way he saw in the vision. Cars parked on the street, people walking in. So he just walked in with them. And the guy whose house it was, the guy trying to get up the petition, got so flustered, he just blabbed it all out and said, here's what I'm doing. Obviously, the Holy Ghost wants you to stay here. Fell down on his knees and said, pray for me, pastor. Well, here's supernatural revelation that saved the church. The Holy Ghost wants to reveal himself. He'll show you things to come. He will show you things to come. We were, uh, the church wasn't very old, but we were over in the uh, industrial building over on Watney. Next to, just behind or a block or so away from the Irvine Auto Center. And there was a guy that, and his family had begun to come to our church. Everything about him looked just good as gold. He was a successful businessman. He wanted to, to help the church. He wanted to get involved. And there were some things that he wanted to do that I was right on the edge of letting him try. Didn't have to go forever. But I thought to myself, well, I don't really know that this would be right for us, but what would it hurt for him to try? And during a service, Sunday morning service, they were sitting right up here on the front, not in this building, of course, but sitting right up here on the, uh, the front row. And I turned to go the other way, just minding my own business, teaching the word, whatever, turned back, and when I turned back, he had in big block letters above his head, deceiver. The word deceiver. Well, I spit and sputtered and came to a stop. Wondering what to do. And I'm sitting there just staring at him. And those, the words hanging in the air. Well, we changed course. And when I wouldn't let him do what he wanted to do, he pulled his family out and they went down to the street to another church and he wound up tearing that thing all to pieces. The pastor listened to him, started following his advice and the church split and fragmented into 100 pieces. The Holy Ghost is the revealer. He'll guide you into all reality. He wants to show you things to come. Folks, if the Holy Ghost is going to the trouble to show everybody in every city concerning Paul, why would he want less for you and me? Certainly Paul was a great minister, but it wasn't because he was Paul. It's because he served a great God and he just wouldn't give up. That's what made Paul effective in ministry. Sure, his knowledge of the old covenant, the fact that he had a position with the Jews and the Pharisees, had the same training that the high priest himself did. All those things are pluses. But none of those things would have been so significant that God couldn't have overcome them with somebody else. 
by making the same commitment that Paul made. I think we have to be careful sometimes of idolizing or, or setting up on a pedestal people that were used of God. And I think it's great for us to honor him. But it's not like if God hadn't had Paul, he'd have been sunk. If you know what I mean. There were, um, there are still a couple of recordings out there. They're few and far between. But in the ministry of a man named William Branham, who along with Oral Roberts really had the most significant ministries during the healing revival. This guy, Branham, he was a backwoods um, you know who Barney Fife is? This guy was a spitting image of Barney Fife. I mean, just that kind of guy. He's small, he's wiry, country guy. He lived for hunting and fishing and that kind of stuff. Just backwoods fella. But God anointed him to be a prophet. And his ministry in places that he would go to and it's not like they were big churches, not like big city churches or anything like that. But the places that he would go to, after the meeting, there would be mountains of crutches and braces and wheelchairs and things like that. Where people were healed during that meeting or during those meetings. And so they discarded their stuff. Pastors used to talk about having to have people come and cart all these things off, donate them to hospitals or children's homes or stuff like that, places where people could use them. But there were so many that it was just staggering. Well, he ministered in a, in a, a very unusual way, pretty unique to himself. And it was by revelation. He didn't just lay hands on the sick. I don't know of any occasions where he just laid hands on the sick. But he would say this. He would describe, people would ask him, you know, how, how is it that God uses you like this? In such a great healing ministry and so forth. And he said, well, he said, I really can't explain it much. I can tell you what I experienced, but I really can't explain it much. He said, when somebody comes up to be prayed for, to have healing ministered to them, he said, it's like I'm standing in front of a blank wall. Now, they would go to great lengths and great detail. He would even do it. As a matter of fact, this was part of what he was waiting for the Holy Ghost to show him or reveal something to him. He would ask people, have I talked to you? Do I know you? Have you talked to anybody here that's with the crusade team or with the church here about your condition or any, uh, any details, personal details about your life and so forth? And, and people would invariably say, no, there was, you know, no reason to talk to anybody along those lines. And then Branham said that all of a sudden, it's like the power of God lifts me up and I can see over the wall. As long as the wall is in front of me, I can't do anything. I don't have any power to do anything. I don't have any anointing to do anything. He said, but when the power of God lifts, it's like it lifts me up and I can see over the wall. He said, when I see over the wall, I see where they live. I see their address. I see things like the, the doctor's diagnosis of their condition, things like that. So he'll tell them a couple of personal details 
to build their faith. And you could well understand if you know you're there in the, to be ministered to, you know you haven't told anybody the information that this guy is saying. Then you could well understand this is the work of God. He said, when I can see things pertaining to them in their life, I see the condition. I oftentimes see the doctor's diagnosis. I tell them what the condition is. And then he doesn't even lay hands on them. He just says, receive your healing. So the healing power of God is, was administered through him by revelation of the Holy Ghost. Now, folks, he could have tried to, to do the same thing without the revelation, but it wouldn't have worked. He could have told him, just be healed of your infirmity. But if God hadn't lifted him above the wall, or if he hadn't parted the veil, so to speak, then there would be no power behind the words that he the authority that he was exercising through his words. The Holy Ghost is the revealer. He'll show you things to come. He'll show you things to come. Folks, we need to build our faith in that area. We need to recognize that the Holy Ghost will show us things so we can be better parents to our kids. He'll show you things to come. He'll guide you into all reality, and he'll show you things to come. The Holy Ghost is the great revealer. He's the great revealer. He's not the hider. He's the great revealer. He'll show you things to come. Then Jesus went so far as to say, all things are mine. That's why I said that he'll take the things of me and show them unto you. The Holy Ghost is the revealer. He wants to manifest himself. He wants us to see and know. There's a spirit of seeing and knowing that's important for these last days. I've been praying for uh, close to five years now for God to raise up prophets that can speak to kings and to nations as in the days of old. Now, I don't know exactly why I'm praying that, other than it just being what God has prompted me to do. I don't know anything more than that up to this point, but I can't get away from it. I just can't get away from it. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, when he was trying to bring order to their services. And he made a statement during the, the discourse that he was outlining. He said, when things are done in order, talking about manifestations of the Spirit, when they're done in order, they'll make manifest the secrets of unsaved hearts. And then they'll come falling on their face before the Lord to give their lives to him. The secrets of men's hearts revealed. Folks, when God starts showing us things like that, it becomes easy to bring people into the kingdom of God. You don't have to reason, it in, reason them into it. But rather you can display the power of God for everybody to see. 
That's the way the church was born. That's the power that the church was born into. That's the power Jesus said we'd receive when the Holy Ghost came upon us. We need to believe for those things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great, holy, mighty, Holy Spirit. We thank you that he is the revealer. We thank you, Father, that you are the self-existent one who reveals yourself. And Jesus said the Holy Ghost would bring it to pass. Holy Spirit, we give you free reign and course in us and in this church. Reveal what we need to see. Guide us into what we need to know. Bring us to the place where we can display your power. Not to build a name for ourselves. But to, to do good for those that need help. Holy Spirit, we trust you to show us things to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. You know, Jesus got the attention of the woman at the well of Samaria in John chapter 4. He got her attention by saying one thing. He told her to go call her husband. And he would give her of that water, everlasting water. He's talking about life, eternal life. She said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, well, you're right about that. You've had four and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. And that was the point. Just that simple bit of information is what caused her to, reveal, to decide that he was a prophet and that he was the Messiah. When we speak by the Holy Ghost, when we operate by the Holy Ghost, rather than just of ourselves, pulling people into God is easy. It becomes simple. Who wouldn't want to serve a God that's all-knowing and all-powerful? Who loves us and wants to do us good? I believe we're going to see more of that in these last days. Can you agree with me on that? Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, thank you for being with us. We love you.